We are live. I'm Seb 3.0, and today I'm speaking with Federica Ernst, who is the co-founder and COO at Gnosis. Gnosis just recently merged. Uh, I know Ethereum merged like two and a half months ago, but all of a sudden Gnosis chain merged out of nowhere. Um, so I wanted to talk to Federica about why uh, Gnosis chain merged and why now and what it means for the Gnosis chain ecosystem. And also talking about some of the new developments that are going on in Gnosis chain, like account extraction, uh, building in privacy, and all the sort of interesting stuff that's going on in the ecosystem, like DAOs, etc. And I also want to find out why she thinks people in the blockchain space don't value decentralization enough. Before we get started, though, please make sure to subscribe, hit the notification bell and the like button to get notified when I do live streams every single week. My guest, Frederica Ernst, is coming up next right here on The Interrupt. <music> Hey. Hey, it's good to be here on this side of uh, the interview room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's good to have you. Um, yeah, so for, for context, for those for, for those people who listen to this podcast but have no idea uh, about the other things I do, um, which, you know, there might be some people uh, in that camp. Um, Federica is the co-host of Epicenter, which is a podcast I also host. And um, we usually interview guests together, but today uh, I'm going to be interviewing her. Um, about Gnosis Chain, the ecosystem, and and specifically like the merge, the Gnosis Chain merge, and you know this is something that I so I, I did a bunch of interviews at um, at DAPCON uh, a few months ago, and I talked to Stefan, and you know this was right when Ethereum was merging, and he told me about the fact that like Gnosis Chain was going to merge at some point, and I like, to totally forgot about it, and then um, I think you told me about it last week, and I was like, okay, we have to do like uh, an interview about this. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a little bit outside, like, you, you know, usually we cover a lot of, you know, IBC, Cosmos, Interchain stuff here on this show, but um, I really like, you know, what you guys are doing over at Gnosis. And so um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll step outside of the boundaries of what we usually do to, uh, to talk about this other uh, important stuff. Outside of your comfort zone. I like. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> no, but it's all, like, you know, also like, yeah, you, you you have to also step out of your comfort zone and her, you know, to like learn about other protocols and it's uh, a even little bit out of your... your comfort zone though, because basically Moses <laughs> Chain has the IBC model but for Ethereum. So basically it's uh ah. it's like it's like outside of your comfort zone, but basically just barely the other side. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um cool. And I I, I prepared here, like I got all my gnosis swag and everything. So um yeah, well, let's um, let's dive in here. Like, yeah, you know, where? Tell me, tell tell me a bit about your background. Even though I know the background, but like for our, for our listeners, um, what's your background and how you got involved with Gnosis? Yeah, so um, my background is in physics. Um, I was a research physicist. Um, I dealt with low dimensional complex quantum systems. Um, I was firmly um, en route to becoming an academic for life and then chickened out at the last minute to co-found Gnosis, uh, which at the time um, was set to become a prediction market protocol, which we did actually build. We also built a metric factor of other things along the way. But uh, yeah, so we, we built lots of stuff for the early and then later Ethereum ecosystem. Um, uh, yeah, like uh, the Gnosis Safe Wallet, um, that's now its own company. Uh, CowSwap, it's also its own company. We built lots of DAO tooling. Um, yeah, and uh, now we're here with uh, Gnosis Chain. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people maybe have forgotten that Gnosis was once, you know, trying to build a prediction market and it was like kind of pioneering in this space in the early days of Ethereum and you guys have built like a metric fuck ton of shit uh, of stuff, you know? And I mean, like, I remember once seeing you give a talk about conditional tokens and it just seems like there, there's so much research and so much, yeah, just like so much R&D that has, that the Gnosis has pumped out. And in addition to that, like actual products that people use, um, you know, the, 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 the bigger, the, like the bigger products that most people you know, associate the Gnosis and use are not the prediction market. It's like, you know, Gnosis Safe or now like Gnosis Chain. 
but it's produced like enormous amounts of value and also like standards for the industry. I feel like, I mean, like Gnosis Safe is the standard that everybody uses. Um, and uh, it's like a huge value for the ecosystem. I, I, I often wonder, like, I also call CowSwap also, like, I remember CowSwap as well. Um, how does Gnosis actually make money? <laughs> what is the <laughs> business model? Um, well, currently the the business model is that GNO is a well. Actually, Gnosis currently does not make money. So I think maybe this is this is kind of uh, what I can preface this with. So uh, Gnosis, the GNO token is a staking token on the Gnosis network. So basically, um, if you stake GNO, um, then uh, the the um, transaction fees of the network accrue to you, just like Ethereum is a staking token for the Ethereum network. Um, Currently, the um, fees um, harnessed that way are fairly low because um, blocks are um, not filled up all the way. So the, um, the fee market hasn't kicked in. Um, but in principle, that is the way of uh, the way that uh, the GNO token would accrue value to the GNO um, holders, including the Gnosis DAO. Um, the way that we have financed ourselves over the last couple of years is by doing a, a conveniently timed ICO in 2017. Just being, being really early. <laughs> being early and being good with money. So basically yeah. the, the 12 and a half million that we um, raised back then are lasting us um, to, to this day. And uh, we still have a couple of hundred million left over. It's a good place to be in. And, and, and actually <laughs> doing things with that money because there are a lot of people that raised ICOs are a lot of projects that raise ICOs that are just kind of sitting on the money or have not really delivered, uh, you know, on, on any of the things that or, or actually provided, uh, you know, much value. Oh um, yeah, no, totally. I think we've built a lot of things. I think we, 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 yeah, no, we've built tons of stuff. We haven't rug pulled anyone. So, yeah. Cool. So yeah, let's, let's talk about Gnosis chain here. And, you know, first I, I want to maybe, go back a little bit and um, yeah, talking about the, where it came from and, you know, with the story with XDAI and how like that chain came to be, cause I'm like, that's kind of fuzzy to me. I, I know like, I know the history, I think from the point at which it became Gnosis chain, but I don't have much context for what happened before. So like, yeah, what, what was the story there? Yeah. So Gnosis chain actually started as XDAI chain in 2018. It was one of the very earliest uh, side chains um, to Ethereum. Uh, Gnosis chain ID is 100. So that gives you an idea of how, how early it was. Um, and it actually started as a proof of authorities chain. So there were um, 20 known validators, so trusted parties, who would um, take turns to validate blocks. Um, so it was... Um, not decentralized in my mind, but mm. basically what, what would pass for decentralized for many other chains. Um, but we, we, we wanted to, we always wanted to kind of take it further than that. So it was always kind of in terms of technology and what was possible on, on XI chain. Um, it was always a very tech heavy chain that a lot of OGs deployed to. Um, but we wanted to make sure that it is seen and it actually is one of the most decentralized chains out there. So su sufficiently decentralized, um, which is why we started a Gnosis Beacon chain um, exactly a year ago before the merge. We, we only noticed on the day that we actually merged that it was exactly a year ago. Um, but we started a Gnosis Beacon chain that ran in parallel to Gnosis chain, exactly as Ethereum did um, two years ago. Um, okay, wait, we, we, we skipped some parts here because like XDime became Gnosis Chain. I feel like yes. we skipped that part. Oh yeah, we let, yeah. Let, let, let me let me back up then. Um, yeah, so there was a vote in the uh, Gnosis and XDI forums about um, Gnosis and XDI joining forces. So XDI mm. actually had a staking token token called stake this is this is how you know it was an early chain <laughs> stake was still available um and uh basically the gnosis dao ended up um buying out all the stake holders and gave yeah. them gno instead so basically stake was replaced by the gno token as a staking token yeah that's just it's like 
has this ever happened before where it, like a chain kind of buys out another chain no i think we were the first yeah it's yeah i remember that at that time like it's agreeing to the forums and there were there were some people that i think you know were not happy with this and but like overall i think it has been uh like a, a benefit yeah. for the ecosystem there were some there were some stakeholders who were not happy because they felt um like a lot of the other um side chains slash l2s had um uh 100x or something recently and they felt x was um still liable to go that way as well so basically when they were given 50% more than what their nominal share was uh, they yeah. were unhappy because they felt they had been cheated out of um like 100x which is re re i mean it's not reason i mean yeah i mean you can take that stance i wouldn't say it's a reasonable one but also it turned out that in the actual vote um that was a very small minority of people um mm. who, who just happened to be very loud on the forum <laughs> And but were, were the XDI team and the Gnosis Chain team like? How did that merging come to be? Were they both like in Berlin, or did you know them, or it just just like how did that happen? Yeah, so we knew them. Um, we felt that we had um, very commensurate values in terms of what yeah. we wanted for the chain, and they were also very solid engineers. Um, they it, it actually turned out that merging the teams wasn't as easy as kind of merging the tokens um, mm. and they eventually all left so basically now gnosis chain is uh, populated by gnosis people and uh, people uh, whom we hired for this purpose okay and so it's been uh over a year now that that merge has happened right well the the x die gnosis merge well, sorry, like the the yes. the like merge zero, uh, <laughs> which is the those two chains merging. That's that's been a while now. And so you you mentioned that like so so Gnosis chain was running as a proof of authority chain with some you know like small ish amount of validators, uh, but it was a proof of stake chain, right? So it's like proof of authority, proof of stake, Ethereum. Well, yeah, yeah. So in principle, yeah, it was more of a proof of authority. Yeah, it was a proof of the proof of authority chain. Yeah. Um, and so there was a there was a beacon chain that was so adjacent to the way Ethereum launched its beacon chain. There was a beacon chain for uh, Gnosis chain that was launched like some sometime about a year ago. Exactly. And what, what was the idea there? Like uh, the idea was to basically kind of mirror the the merge with uh, as Ethereum has merged. Exactly. So basically, um, I mean, the way that um, the merge on Ethereum happened um, was that uh, basically, instead of one, uh, in, instead of one client, you actually have two client clients, mm -hmm. um, one execution layer client and one consensus layer client. And basically, the, the execution layer um, just worked as it always has. But the rules as to who is allowed to build the next block um, that's set by the consensus layer, and that was kind of um, uh, that was merged in, um, because obviously the the uh, the execution layer um, in Ethereum test nets has also always been um, able to run on its own. So basically, there's plenty of Ethereum test nets that were never proof of work, right? So mm -hmm. because for test nets, proof of work is terribly a bad idea. Uh, yeah. is usually a bad idea. So. Um, that, that's always been possible to kind of run the consensus separately from the execution. Um, and this this is basically how Ethereum merged, just uh, switched out how the consensus um, layer works. Um, and the same happened for Gnosis Chain, only that it didn't switch from proof of work to proof of stake, but from proof of authority to proof of stake. Hmm. And so now there's a, so after the merge, just like with Ethereum, there's like a, an execution layer client and there's a consensus layer client and validators will run both of those clients. But are, are there several, or is it like, I think with Ethereum, there's like two or three per, uh, like there's two or three execution layer clients. Yeah, there's five each. For there's Ethereum. five each. Okay. Yeah. And is, is it the same, same clients with Gnosis Chain? Or, or yeah. So uh, Gnosis Chain is actually one of the very few, maybe the only 
side chain slash layer two with more than one client. So basically in terms of um, uh, consensus layer clients, there's um, Teku, Prism, Lighthouse, Nimbus, and Lodestar. And um, on the execution uh, side, we currently only have Nethermind, uh, but uh, Aragon, um, Geth, and Besu are going to come soon. Okay. So why why did this merge um, take an extra two months? Why What was the, the reasoning behind uh, waiting until after uh, Ethereum mainchain had merged? Yeah, originally we said we might do it before Ethereum, but there were a lot of hard engineering problems that were not just copy-paste from Ethereum for Gnosis Chain because we transitioned from um, Aura proof of authority consensus. And there were um, a lot of, because it's a very old chain, um, there were a lot of legacy debts that needed to be taken into account. And once we'd kind of um, uh, missed uh, front-running Ethereum, uh, we didn't really see a uh, a good reason to hurry up and risk anything uh so we kind of we we, we uh just like ethereum we went through several uh shadow merges before we did the real thing um and uh the real thing went um off with without a hitch so good. i think that was the right call did, did you have a big party at full note uh we did not have a big party at, at, at well actually we had we had we had we had yeah sadly we actually had a our Christmas party at full note the next day. But okay. somehow it seems like literally all of Berlin is sick. So this was <laughs> it was it was like literally the only party that we've ever had that wasn't completely overrun. Actually it was there were maybe like sixty people here or something. Which yeah. for for usual full note party, that's like it's like Crazy. probably a quarter or something <laughs> <laughs> and um and so what, what were some of these technical issues like these technical challenges that you had to go through um and what did you learn from you know the post ethereum merge uh that that helped uh, gnosis chain Oh, there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts, right? So, I mean, obviously, you kind of you need to make sure that uh, you you keep on producing blocks and that you're finalizing and everything works on that end. But also the other side, so basically things like um, token explorers and uh, infrastructure and so on, that also all needs to work through the merge. Um, basically, so there's a lot of moving parts, and I think this is something that. Um, uh, we generally don't appreciate enough. Also, how much for the for Ethereum the merge? How much of a coordination effort it truly was? Yeah, I, I wonder though. Like, I mean, because Ethereum the Ethereum ecosystem is so vast, and there's like so many moving parts and applications using it, and contracts. And was was it as challenging, or was it easier for Gnosis to kind of like line up all of the stakeholders and? application developers and you know block explorers and everything like was it easier or was it like how would you qualify that i think it was probably easier and harder so basically the, it was it was easier because there are fewer dependencies on gnosis chain than there are on ethereum so basically if there's a fuck up there's a fuck up that's still bad but it's not as bad as kind of downing uh, ethereum right yeah. um, but on the other hand it was probably harder because there wasn't basically at the time if you if you if you think back to you know the week of the merge ethereum had the full attention of the ecosystem everyone yeah. knew this was happening and obviously we did not get that same bandwidth of uh, uh <clears throat> of you know just you know brain power yeah cuz like it's a smaller ecosystem but at yes. the same time like and and also you you guys are like one team, right? So like Gnosis is very much sort of I think leading development on Gnosis chain. So you you're probably like sort of centrally co controlling or not control, uh, uh, coordinating a lot of the a lot of the teams around like integrating with post merge. Yeah. So actually. Interestingly, most of the people who actually work on Gnosis Chain on the protocol level don't actually work at Gnosis proper. They work oh. at the clients uh, on on the clients, right? right? Basically, yeah. the basically the client uh, uh, the clients have teams that are dedicated for Gnosis. Oh, we lost Veleka. All right.
think maybe she uh, turned off her browser. There she is. Hey, sorry, it, I just got saying something went wrong. Like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you were saying that the, the client teams are are the ones who are working on. Yes, so obviously yeah. we kind of we have the same thing as Ethereum does. So basically, like a co-client coordinator. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically the the protocol development happens client side. Okay. So uh, what what happened at the merge? Did it just it just it just it just worked everything worked everything worked surprisingly literally everything <laughs> worked and we we went from 20 uh validators to 110,000 validators like just That's like insane. this it, okay. it was insane it was fantastic so so I'd like to talk about yeah about the the validator ecosystem here because like you know on on the cosmos side of things um typically chains have between you know like a hundred to maybe 175. I think we can push it to like 200 validators. That's what Tendermint consensus um, kind of works with. I think I think it could go up like a little bit more than that. But generally, we're in the you know one to 200 range um, for like instant finality Tendermint consensus. Um, obviously, Ethereum consensus works differently, and this is what allows it to have you know many more validators, but also making some compromises on finality. Um, as I understand it, um, what uh, yeah, what 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 does it mean? Like, how many of those validators are like? In, do you have any sense of how many of those validators are like individuals, or are they running on like uh, home uh, validators, or are they running on infrastructure? Or are they delegating? Like, give us a sense of what the validator landscape looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So I think to kind of back up a little bit, um, I think we kind of. Um, I mean, obviously, this makes us look good, right? The number. Yeah. But um, I think we need to be honest here and kind of uh, compare apples with apples and oranges with oranges. So um, in my understanding, if you look at um, the Tendermint consensus and the Cosmos protocol, that that's yeah. like individuals, or I mean, individual entities that kind of run nodes, right? That run um, nodes for where, delegators, yeah. Yeah, where, whereas... Um, in the Ethereum ecosystem, and basically that extends to Gnosis as well. Basically, Ethereum has 450,000 validators, but that just means that um, there's uh, 450,000 instances of 32 ETH being yep. staked. And basically yep. anyone can run. I mean, there's a limit how much you can physically run on, uh, on, a, on hardware, but typically like 100 or 200 um, validators per, you know, decent sized hardware is totally within the realm of the possible. So basically, mm. when when we say there's 110,000 validators on Gnosis chain, we don't we don't mean that there's 110,000 distinct entities that run validators. There's yeah. Uh, yeah. So and I think basically this is this is this is. Um, it always makes me a little bit queasy because obviously Cosmos is really decentralized and just because, you know, there's, I mean, having 200 distinct entities run nodes, that's fantastic. That's, that's great. Um, so, yeah. So basically Gnosis Chain, um, the, the way that we approach this is we try to make it as easy as possible for people to um, run a node. And this has, to a certain um, extent, this has also been Ethereum's um, uh, goal. So, yeah. uh, whereas um, on Cosmos, you kind of, you need to be a professional to kind of really run a node. Um, yeah. It's not really something that lay people should attempt or do attempt. Um, oh, this some is do. Not some do okay <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i mean I, I mean look if you have some amount of like devops experience it's it's possible but it is not trivial like yeah it's you need not to, just like you have running, really you have uptime requirements yeah. and stuff right so basically yeah yeah on on ethereum um you get penalized if you're not um up 
but you get penalized very little. So unless everyone actually goes down at the same time, um, then you get yeah. penalized a lot. But basically, if 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 it's just that your computer goes down, like your kid pulls the plug or something, yeah, it's it's non it's not non punitive. So um, I mean, what what basically um, for Ethereum is um, the bottleneck is that you actually need to um, stake with in in increments of thirty two ETH and. Mm -hmm. 32 ETH, that's a lot of money, right? Yeah. So basically, most people don't just have that lying around. <clears throat> so if you want to um, stake less, you can you can delegate to someone and someone else can stake for you. Like um, Lido or like any of these like liquid staking providers. Yeah. Exactly. Um, on Osis Chain, the capital requirements are way lower. So you actually need one GNO that's currently a little bit under $100. Um, mm. And you can do it, I mean, you can do it on dedicated hardware like DAP nodes, for instance, um, but you can also do it on your home computer provided you don't shut it off. <clears throat> yeah. And it's pretty, it's fairly easy um, to install. Um, we've actually, we encourage all our people to, to do it. Um, and we have many people inside of Gnosis who are very much I mean, who are smart, but non-technical and uh, they can all do it. Uh, so it, it's like um, we, we, we want to make it easier still. Ideally, I'd like to get to a point where you can just um, do in-browser uh, staking or something. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I mean, it should be even easier, but we try to make it as easy as possible to kind of become a node in the Gnosis chain. Uh, in the Gnosis chain. Why could you, is there, are there like any impediments to being able to do this like on a phone or something it's like a phone is typically always on and um other than yeah. draining the battery <laughs> <laughs> yeah in principle um i think in principle down the road you should be able to do it currently it's we're still not there right so basically kind yeah. of it requires treating um running a validator kind of as a product and we try to do this, and I think we've actually made it at least two orders of magnitude easier to 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 validate. Um, yeah. But it's still not um, at this at the point where you basically where you just run it on your phone. Yeah. Um, so when you say that when you say that there you need one uh, no uh, Geno token to stake, does that mean that like basically like one token is one validator? So, whereas yes. in, you know, it's, okay. So if there's like a hundred thousand validators that means that there are a hundred thousand geno tokens staked essentially yes okay do we have a sense of how many people or entities that is do, do we are have we like any metric to um yeah it's it's difficult to say i would i would guesstimate it's on the order of um a thousand or so so basically you you kind of you can i mean you can see where these GNO lie, right? So basically, mm. this GNO that are on the same address, addresses, obviously it's the same person, but often yeah. people kind of um, run validators from different uh, sure. GNO addresses and so on. So yeah, I, I would I would estimate between five hundred and a thousand. That's pretty good. I mean, like that's I think that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, we're we're trying to get to. Um, we know that there, so basically from IPs and so on, we can see that yeah. there's um, GNO validators in 42 countries. Um, and uh, basically we, we want to get to 100 because obviously um, there's different um, jurisdictional um, uh, influences um, yeah. that can be exerted upon nodes. So basically having, um, having this be truly distributed and not just... Um, in uh you know in the same jurisdiction to us that's a huge upside what's also important to us um <laughs> is that people don't just run it um on data centers right yeah. so basically in principle you can you can run it on on aws uh servers or heads or elsewhere but um that's not as good as actually having people stake at home which is why very early on we partnered with um people who make and distribute hardware that is dedicated for home stakers. So people yeah. like Dabnode and Avado. Um, and uh, yeah, because basically a network that is run by at home stakers, it's unstoppable. And I think this is where we need to get to. Yeah. I, I I've, I've been like wanting to buy one of these Dabnodes. Um 
Yeah, I think. I mean, I think I, I met. I mean, we we had a we had a podcast on Epicenter with um, Edu. Edu, yeah, Edu of Dapnode, and you know, he was showing me that product. And I think, yeah, I think it's like a cool product. It is, I think, for a lot of people, a bit prohibitive because it does cost upwards of you know twenty five hundred euros or something like that. Um, uh, but this I mean, you can do like a lot of things with it. Like, you know, you can, you can run a Bitcoin node, you can run an Ethereum validator, you can do like IDFS and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So, I mean, basically what one should say that you could, you can actually do all of these things in parallel, but basically if you have like a disused computer that you don't typically shut off or that you don't need to shut off, um, you can yeah. also just get all the packages from that node for free and install sure. them on that computer. So in yeah. principle, it's not tied to buying the hardware. Yeah. Is there like a high memory requirement? Like what, you can't do this on like a like a Raspberry Pi or something like that. Can you? Can't do it on a Raspberry Pi. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. So before the show, you told me that, you know, you, you, you felt that decentralization is something that people don't value properly, especially in this ecosystem. And I, I know that this is something you've talked about before and we've chatted about. Um, what's that about? Why, why do you think we don't value decentralization, decentralization enough? I think it's something that's gotten lost over the over the years. So basically, I think people who actually started this ecosystem, they were idealists and they were driven by the by by the idea that um, doing something in a truly um, decentralized and distributed manner makes um, systems incredibly resilient. Um, And I, I, in a way, this is what the entire blockchain ethos has been built upon. But then um, we lost part of that in like the the intervening hype cycles. So obviously, kind of blockchain that you know blockchain as as a, a tag um, drew in a lot of money, and and people kind of forget um, what 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 it was that drew people in in the first place so now um we see lots of blockchain ecosystems that are as we say in in germany dinos so decentralized in name only <laughs> <laughs> yeah the german regulatory slang thing but um and in the way you kind of you lose so basically building something on distributed networks is really hard. It's so much harder than doing it in a centralized fashion on a server somewhere, on a service, uh, on a on a server service somewhere. Um, so basically, if you do that, you need to make sure that you also reap the benefits. But basically, if um, the distribution just consists of having 15 known entities, or sometimes even fewer than 15 known entities, between whom this um, all happens that's a list of people to call if you want to shut anything down <clears throat> so i think that's you're, you're getting a lot of the downsides without actually getting the main upside um and yeah so this 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 was my controversial take that people don't value decentralization enough and people forget why decentralization is important until the minute that they need it until until you know the three-letter agencies knock on their doors and shut down their blockchains. Um, people forget it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's such a controversial view. At least, like, not in the circles that I run in. Um, oh, you have nice circles. <laughs> well, I mean, you're in my circle, so. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, I, I like. I feel like. There is a part of the kind of crypto community um, that is building software and you know bu building like decentralized applications, and where a lot of the decision making process also includes or um, you know the decision making process uh, you know also takes takes into account. Uh, the amount of decentralization in not only the validator set, but all in, in but also in governance. And I know, I know like this is something in Cosmos that 
you know, we, we talk about a lot where, well, for example, on, on, you know, many of the top Cosmos chains, validators like Binance and Coinbase and Kraken are, you know, often in the top five, if not like first or second. And this, you know, this is, this causes problems because, well, they control uh, a large stake and they also don't vote in governance. And there have been instances, or at least one that I know of that, um, governance wasn't able to pass quorum because, uh, one of these validators, one of these exchanges wasn't voting. And so there's a lot of conversation and debate, I think about, you know, like, how do we, um, address that? And yeah, for me, it's like also part of this, 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 this conversation that we you know, want to maintain this ethos of, of decentralization. And I feel like the Ethereum ecosystem, certainly in many of the chains in Ethereum, um, also carry this ethos and certainly like Cosmos does and Bitcoin as well. I think Cosmos does for sure. I think we in the Ethereum ecosystem don't always get this right. So, I mean, if you look at um, EVMs, you know, in the Ethereum uh, space, um, EVM chains, I mean, I mean, just, I mean, if you look at them by kind of, transaction volume or so the number one is definitely binance smart chain um and uh so basically people are pay, paying transaction fees for being included on binance smart chain which is definitely not a decentralized chain and then all the all the l2s on top of ethereum they are all centralized in you know they have a centralized choke point um in the form of the sequencer so basically the, there's there's you know, in, in very basic terms, there's one entity that's allowed to build blocks. That's the sequencer. Um, and the sequencer can exclude anyone they like <laughs> mm. fr from, from uh, being included in this. And uh, uh, basically, the, these L2s, they talk about decentralizing the sequencer. And I think eventually they will. Um, but until then, there's a very centralized choke point um, that can be uh, used to basically shut down or censor transactions. Hmm. You're thinking specifically of like Ethereum L2s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. also L1s in the Ethereum ecosystem, right? So basically Binance, Smart Chain, Polygon, and so on. It's all fairly centralized. Hmm. Yeah. I think this was actually this was actually something really good that actually happened to the Cosmos ecosystem um, that you remember a couple of years ago when the entire it looked like uh, like the Interchain Foundation and kind of all of the different entities in that it kind of it was a huge mess and it kind of fell apart. But I think because there was no centralized stakeholder anymore, it actually enormously. I mean, it could have been it could have gone either way, but it enormously yeah. benefited the Cosmos ecosystem in the end because. Uh, and yeah, so that didn't happen for Ethereum, and I think I mean Ethereum is is decentralized mostly <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean if you look at ofac compliant blocks and kind of uh, i mean yeah so it's 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 kind of i think we've turned around and um gnosis recently uh released oh this is one of the other things we were doing we recently released a uh, a a um relayer that doesn't censor it's called agnostic relay um and basically ever since uh the number of ofac compliant blocks on ethereum has come down significantly again so yeah 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 we need to do a whole episode about that on on epicenter <laughs> at some point the whole ofac thing um so how does uh, so so someone here was asking in the chat um how governance works on gnosis chain so do people like people vote directly like there's no delegated voting um it's it's like direct voting yes <clears throat> okay and what, i mean in principle you can delegate your uh, in principle you can delegate your votes but there's no um there's no interface which kind of shows who, whom you can delegate to. So basically people currently use it mostly to delegate um, to an externally owned address if they have something on a smart contract wallet or something. But yeah, mm. we, we need to um, establish um, some sort of delegation system because obviously 
you can't expect every every GNO holder to know about all the things going on in the GNO uh, in the in the Gnosis ecosystem. You, you can't expect everyone to keep abreast of that. So, kind of delegating in principle um, should be uh, should be fantastic to have. Hmm. So let's um, let's zoom out here a little bit and talk about some of the uh, interesting innovations that are happening on Gnosis chain and. You know, one of the things you mentioned earlier, you, you mentioned like some some tweet that said that uh, basically, uh, you know, Ethereum goes through two years of of research and development to avoid two minutes of downtime, and uh, I think that yeah, it's like a good way to to look at it, right? There's like a, a ton of of research and development and debate and and um, working to find like the best technical solutions in order to avoid you know any uh, potential downtime to the chain with Gnosis Chain. Maybe the approach is a little bit less conservative, um, where there's like less at stake, at least for now, uh, and that enables you guys to move a little bit faster and maybe move fast. Maybe move fast and break things is not the right way to look at it, but at least um, I think it's always been in the ethos of Gnosis Chain to try to be as like you know feature compatible with your Ethereum as possible, but also pushing. Um, pushing the envelope on like some very innovative and kind of cutting edge stuff. So what are some of the things that you guys are working on now that like people should expect in Gnosis Chain? And then, you know, how does that like research then, how, does it benefit Ethereum directly where, you know, because it's been built on, like it's been done on Gnosis Chain, then there's already some amount of research and testing and, um, and experience that this can kind of flow up into Ethereum. Is that the idea? Um, yes, I think uh, th that that can happen for many of the things that we are planning to implement. Um, so, if you look at uh, if you look at what the onboarding experience is like for people who come into the crypto ecosystem, um, it's bad and it's uniformly bad between different ecosystems. I believe it's the same in Cosmos as well. So basically, you you. Um, you onboard and you're told these are your 12 magic words. Never lose them. Never show them to anyone or you'll lose all your money. Obviously, this is a terrible onboarding experience. So basically, things like onboard with email and later change your password or change who who is uh, your guardian for, uh, for, for your seed phrase and so on. <clears throat> Having social recovery, to me, that is something that um, is absolutely necessary absolutely necessary to have and the way to actually go about this is to um to institute um account abstraction um by what what is account abstraction exactly it means that every account um that uh gets created on gnosis chain um is is automatically a smart contract wallet in the back end um yeah. basically for us that would be a gnosis safe and that's kind of it's it's the it's the de facto standard in the Ethereum eco ecosystem as well. So basically, that allows you to replace the keys that sign for that account after the fact. So basically, you can say, okay, I'll let you, I'll let you onboard your Sebastian at gmail.com or at uh, uh, whatever. That's my email, and by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not you. Um, I'm, I'm not doxing you here. So... Um, and uh, basically, and that way, basically, I can custody your keys for you. But if you want, uh, if you want to take your uh, t take custody back or give custody to a third party, um, you can rotate the keys. So basically, mm. you can take away my signing pair, and you can put in new keys. Um, and obviously, that will facilitate onboarding because you can upgrade security after the fact. Um, yeah. And you don't have this, you know, how, how when you download MetaMask for people and, you know, you're like, oh, these are the 12 words. Can you write them down? You can't take a screenshot shot on your phone. I mean, basically, it's it's terrible. This is not how we will onboard the next 100 million people. Yeah. So basically, yeah, instituting account abstraction. This is number one for Gnosis Jane um, in the new year. Um, and I think so. So just um, just on that for a second, um, I mean the, the issue with account of I mean to to the extent that I, you know I've used things like Argent, uh, you know, which I think was one of the earlier wallets to do this kind of social recovery. Wallet, like every wallet is a smart contract. Um, the issue that they ran into there with Ethereum at least was just the exorbitant fees, right? I mean, it's like every setting up a wallet was expensive, and then also transactions are also more expensive with 
with this sort of account abstraction is the idea then for that to be kind of at the chain level where um, the, like it, it doesn't have the same uh, relationship to fees as like some other smart contract would have. Yeah, I mean, there's different ways to do it. So basically, you either you do it on the account level, uh, on on the on the uh, protocol level, or you have like some sort of relay service. And basically, basically, in terms of engineering, all of these are feasible. It is true that basically, if you have very simple transactions, then yes, it is is it, it is a lot cheaper to actually do it from an externally owned. Um, address wallet um, but there are certain things you can actually where you can improve the user experience markedly um, namely by rolling different transactions together you know how you have to kind of on on ethereum you kind of you have to um, uh, set an allowance for your wallet for a certain token and then basically in a second transaction you then have to um, to uh, uh, do the transaction itself um, and basically rolling this into one so you do, you can you can actually do this um, in one transaction and you can you can do much more complicated flows as well and you can even do things like you can abstract the gas cost away from the user completely so basically yeah. you can for instance have it uh, such that when people use your uh, your DAP that you cover the transaction cost um, while kind of making the money back in some other way, uh, and there's no need for people to actually pay for each 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 individual transaction. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, what what do you think of like? So I I, I I I'm also of the opinion that you know twelve words is not uh, sort of the long term. Uh, way that we onboard, you know, lots of users, uh, maybe 100 million is a good number. But um, and, and I also think that this kind of progressive uh, securing of one's account, right? So you, where you can start with an email address and then uh, move to something more secure as your account balance grows or, you know, over time, I think this is also a great idea. Um, what Where do you stand on the like MPC versus smart contract? Um, line like because like some people are building this as as MPC uh, systems where um, you know you have like basically one share of an MPC and then like some company has another one and there might be like a third one for a backup or something and then there's like the on chain smart contract um, model uh, which which uh, which is better in your opinion or or like what are the trade offs here? Um. I think you can replicate more or less the same things with either. So basically, a smart contract um, is. Um, so I'm not a I'm not an expert on the MPC implementation, but basically, on what you can do in a smart contract is you can um, have very granular permission settings. So basically, you can say like, for instance, um, I will give a key to this person. They can spend up to uh, two hundred dollars a month. Um, on these kinds of things. I don't know, on uh, this educational store or whatever for my kids. Um, and then uh, you can give uh, you can give uh, keys, you, you can give out keys that in principle can replace keys but can't do actually any transactions themselves. You can have um, like social recovery. Um, you can have social recovery where you where you say, look, these are my 10 closest friends. If eight of them agree that this is really me, but I've lost my keys, um, I can just uh, wipe this clean and kind of put all new keys and so on. So in principle, smart contracts are extremely um, uh, extremely flexible in how you implement this and how you augment it after the fact. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like the smart contract approach. I mean, I think it... it it introduces issues with with um, it introduces issues when fees are um, fees are high, but for something like Gnosis Chain, where fees are like fairly low, um, I think it's a good solution. I, I I don't know how that would work on Ethereum though. Are there any any discussions already already about like how this works yes. on Ethereum? Yeah, so I, I think this is kind of the general discussion of what should be on Ethereum base layer and what should go um, in the layer twos or basically, you know, what you can actually do with uh, dank sharding. Um, you can have like lots of information that is in principle available for the layer twos and you can kind of roll up transactions into, um, uh, into you know, very 
pinpointed transactions that get checked into Ethereum. So basically everything is checked in principle and basically with scaling solutions. Um, I fear that for the foreseeable future, we will probably be okay. Will it last us forever? Probably not. But uh, yeah, I think in that sense, um, Ethereum has moved itself um, into this position where it kind of banks on layer twos on top of Ethereum. Um, so basically that, that uh, I mean, I, I think basically distinguishing between a sidechain and a layer two, um, which people sometimes use, um, <clears throat> uh, use basically people sometimes mix them up. So basically a sidechain is a layer one that runs in parallel to Ethereum, but um, is um, connected with ideally trustless bridges. Um, and then there's the layer twos, which kind of intermittently um, give their stay to Ethereum to kind of make sure that everything that's included in the layer two is also included in Ethereum and thus get base layer security from Ethereum. Um, and uh, where Cosmos has kind of gone the uh, different L1s that are trustlessly connected with each other route. Ethereum has gone the um, L2s on top of Ethereum route. Um, and I think basically you know, this chain is a little bit between the two in that it is a side chain that runs in parallel to Ethereum, but is trustlessly connected with bridges. Um, so, uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, with Cosmos, I think we also are starting to see like different models emerge. I mean, not quite yet, but there are like, you know, we can sort of see them in the distance with things like Celestia um, that, uh, you know, potentially will host a, a whole sort of set of applications as, as rollups. Um, and then these would also be uh, either connected directly to, through some IBC implementation or via the Celestia uh, main chain. And then, you know, there's also uh, all of the smart contract chains on um, on uh, in, in the Cosmos ecosystem, although these don't like typically have L2s, uh, you know, they run applications. And so then the idea is, okay, well, how do these interoperate through IBC? I, I don't know of any, you know, sort of traditional kind of like in the traditional sense, rollups, uh, like in the form of ZK rollups or uh, optimistic rollups in the Cosmos ecosystem. I, I, I don't know that like people are actually working on that other than in the context of like something like Celestia where there's like a data availability layer. Um, but yeah, perhaps at some point once, once, you know, like block space becomes scarce enough, that might become like a necessity. I should add that all the L2s that Ethereum has, Gnosis has them as well. So basically, we have, uh, we have optimistic rollups and ZK rollups, and they work exactly the same way as, as in Ethereum. Um, and we, we actually make sure that new dApps actually deploy to them. So um, someone, in the, someone in the comments asked whether there was something like POAP on Gnosis chain, and POAP is actually on Gnosis chain itself. Um, but... Uh, I think in the very beginning, POAP was on Ethereum mainnet and it just became unfeasibly expensive. So they they uh, they migrated to uh, Gnosis Chain many years ago. <clears throat> um, but uh, for instance, we have, so you guys may know the Dark Forest games. Um, they're deployed on Gnosis Chain, but not on Gnosis Chain directly, but they're um, on Optimism on Gnosis Chain. And then there's... Um, uh, a payments network called Oli that we're launching um, that's also uh, deployed on an optimistic rollup on top of Gnosis Chain. So basically we try to kind of mitigate this and kind of prolong the time until block space becomes um, much more expensive by already kind of pushing things to L2s on Gnosis Chain even before Gnosis Chain blocks are full. Yeah. So there's just remind me there's like a few more things I want to hit on before we wrap up here and I realize that you have a hard stop but um, so yeah this this Oli Visa Oli product I think is super cool uh, so what's how does this work and uh, when is it going to be live oh so it's um, <clears throat> it's already live <laughs> but it's currently oh, okay. in proof it's in proof of concept so basically the team we have cards but that's it um, so. Um, 
it is a Visa card that is also a hardware wallet. Basically, it holds your private keys to your Gnosis chain account. Uh, you have your stables in there. Um, you tap on any uh, Visa terminal worldwide, and it takes your uh, your stables out of your Gnosis chain account directly um, and puts them on the Visa payment rails. Um, it is more or less instant, so it takes six seconds. Um, and uh, it's got the exact same user experience um, as a traditional credit card. So you tap, um, and unless it's above a certain threshold, like in Europe, it's often 50 euros or so, you, you enter um, a four-digit pin, and that's it. Um, that is literally all um, you have to do. And the super nifty thing is, if the merchant accepts staples, and they're, they're basically... If enough of if enough people actually have these credit cards, they are very much um, incentivized to do so uh, because the Visa payment stack takes about two percent out of your purchase. Um, uh, if the merchant accepts stables directly, Visa is bypassed, um, and you pay uh, in stables from your wallet to the merchant's wallet, um, and they save the two percent that they would have spent on the Visa stack. So when Stefan told me about this, it just like blew my mind. So like, <laughs> because, because he, you guys, like he started getting into some of the, like the technical specs of Visa. And apparently there are like some extra messages that you can send. So you guys kind of like really took apart the Visa protocol and leveraged the, you know, the, this sort of like very proprietary protocol in order to be able to do this. But like this, this, this idea that you can use your Visa card and it'll, uh, it'll fall back to stable coins uh, and send stable coins directly if the merchant is excellent. It's so cool. Like I, I, I've never heard of anybody else do this, but it must be like very technically complex to be able to initiate that transaction from the card itself on the payment terminal. Actually, that's, um, <clears throat> I mean, not to kind of knock on our achievement here, but uh that's not actually all that technically complex. You kind of you just need to make sure that um, you integrate well into the visa payment rails and you actually need to work with someone who is like an actual payment processor. So basically, we actually did this as a joint venture between us and SaltPay, um, who has, uh, they, they have millions of visa terminals um, in Europe um, and, uh, and Tangem, who actually make the credit cards that are also hardware wallets. So basically, it's kind of, there were very disjunct pieces, but um, the actual signing of the message is less complex than you'd, th you'd think. But the, what, what's the beauty of it to me is that it's a form factor that people, you know, instinctively know how to use because many, many crypto products, actually maybe all crypto products we've built so far, have been crypto products targeted at crypto users. And this is something that is targeted as at, at nomies. So basically anyone can use a freaking credit card. We all know this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And um, so, so it's, it's currently like uh, running as a, as a, as a pilot. Uh, when is it going to be available to the public and how can I sign up? <laughs> I think we'll circulate a Google form um, shortly um, for people to kind of get on the wait list. Um, I think first half of next year is a good guess. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, and so so we talked about account abstraction. Uh, yeah, let's let's talk about this bridging stuff a little bit because uh, sure. yeah, I'm not like very plugged into the state of inter of like interoperability in Ethereum. And uh, like the, I, I realized that there are some very particular challenges there that are different from the challenges in the IBC world. And so how are you tackling this with um, these ZK-like client bridges that you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, IBC was kind of designed for a world of interoperable blockchains, right? I mean, this is kind of the design spec for, for IBC. And Ethereum very much wasn't that. <clears throat> so um, what is always tricky between... Uh, different chains you kind of you need to know what the state of the other chain is right so because you you need to know if you send something um what what that that's actually you, you if you receive something from a different chain you kind of need to to verify the state of that cha cha chain in order to kind of um reproduce 
um, that token on the on the target chain. Um, and what in principle, I mean, if you look at how it's done now, usually it's it's kind of multi-sigs. Um, so basically kind of like, uh, uh, like five parties or so who independently look at whether a transaction has happened and then kind of uh, automatically sign off on the transaction on, in the target chain. That's kind of multi-sig bridges. <coughs> Um, but what you can in principle do is you can have a light client that verifies, uh, verifies the state of the target chain um, or the, uh, the chain that uh, funds come from um, on the target chain. You can have light clients on those cha chains directly. Obviously, you can't really run a light client on Gnosis chain or Ethereum just because in terms of compute, it's really expensive. But what you can do is you can actually put it into a um, ZK socket um, and use the succinctness quality of the zero-knowledge circuit um, in order to prove the state of the chain um, on the other chain. Um, and that's exactly what we did. So we have ZK light client bridge uh, between Gnosis chain and Ethereum, and in principle, it can work between any um, EVM chains that were that have uh, that are on proof of stake, um, because you kind of you rely on the validator sync committees um, for this as well. But um, yeah, so you have completely trustless bridges. Um, obviously, I mean they're currently um, they're around in uh, there's a proof of concept. Um, it doesn't currently um, operate under load um, because we've been hesitant to kind of transfer everything from the current multi-sig bridge, the Omni bridge that we have between Gnosis and Ethereum, because um, we have seen so many bridge hacks over the last yeah. year. <laughs> and if with a completely new technology, obviously um, the space to make mistakes is enormous. Um, and what we will actually do is we will use a multi-sig of bridges so we will have two bridges run in parallel so the old multi-sig bridge um the omni bridge um and the new zk light client bridge and if they both agree that there should be a transfer the transfer mm. will happen if they don't agree um then nothing will happen and will have to be resolved um but that means in order to kind of hack the bridge not only do you have to find a bug in the zk light client bridge you also have to compromise more than half of the signers to the to the legacy multi sig mm -hmm. bridge so basically it becomes it's kind of like putting a sieve in a sieve right so uh, it becomes a lot less probable that people actually find two bugs at the same time. And we are also cooperating with a number of other teams who build implementations of zk light client bridges. Um, for instance, there's one within the status uh, community and there's one at Berkeley. And um, they um, basically, in the long run, <laughs> what you actually, where you want to get to, is that you have several implementations of um, zk light client bridges between Gnosis chain and Ethereum and any other chain you, that you want, um, but you don't operate them singly, but you operate them in tan tandem. So basically, only if all three different bridge implementations agree that something should happen, this will actually happen. And basically finding um, vulnerabilities in three different bridges at the same time, obviously, this is much, much less likely than finding a vulnerability in one bridge. And I think okay. this is kind of how we can um, how how we can do this in the interim until they are um, uh, you know tried and tested under load. So with with uh, this implementation, what's the uh, what what is the implementation path? So do all do all uh, chains need to implement this ZK like client? And then all of a sudden they're just like all, you can bridge them all together or do you need to create um, the two way like bridge? It's a two way. So they're so much like with the IBC, like every chain has to create yes. a bridge with another chain. So you have to have these channels. Um, okay. And um and in, and in terms of like the user, I think like the user experience of bridging is one that is, is an issue that uh, is often overlooked, right? So like, you know, 
you might have one experience with one bridge and with another bridge, you might have a different experience. It might not be like compatible with your wallet. And, and the nice thing about IBC is that like if you use any Cosmos chain, moving assets between uh, chains is it's like, you know, it's the, you do it, you do it the same way across all chains, right? Like it works in any wallet, wallets, uh, applications have implemented it. And so the, the user experience of moving assets is fairly uh, simple and it's like quite pleasant to use. Um, what what does it look like with with these zk bridges? Do, or do we expect that like the use the UX will kind of be unified across all EVM chains, or will some of them have different implementations that may or may not be compatible with some or some other wallets? Like, what what's the what's the complexity matrix there? Yeah, in principle, they need not be. Um compatible, but I expect that there will be a de facto standard that people will adhere to. Um, the, the problem that we have in the EVM space is that as soon as you bridge one asset over a bridge, that asset gets newly forged basically on the other side of the bridge, right? Um, so with, well, no, sorry. Yeah, with IBC, no, that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. What, I mean, it what is, but it, it is, but it is like a fungible asset. I mean, although you know, if you if you IBC say like from chain A to chain B, and then chain B to chain C, and then back to chain A, um, I don't think no that that you you basically have to unwind those transactions in order to come back to the main token. Yeah, so basically uh, on on EVM chains, it's like that as well. So basically, the the things that are bridged, if the same token gets bridged via different bridges, um, it's de facto non fungible. Not the same token. So basically, what you actually end up relying on is an army of market maker who will kind of exchange those different representations of the same token for like a basis point or two basis points, um, and and then basically um, the DApp developers will have to make sure that basically if someone comes with a token, um, that they somehow integrate this army of market makers or like a, a marketplace for exchanging these tokens, so that the user doesn't have to be bothered by which mm. token it is. I think this is something that we can abstract away quite easily from the user and users shouldn't have to know um, what, what bridge their tokens came over. Ideally, they shouldn't even have to know which freaking chain they're on. It's like, yeah. I mean, they should know which apps they want to use and then things should just work. And I think this is where we'll get to eventually. Um, it'll take a little bit of time, but uh, yeah. yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully, yeah, I think like the UX around interoperability is like probably one of the biggest challenges in crypto, you know, with, with, um, you know, like accounts, right? Like, and securing one's, one's coins. Um, they're inherently huge problems that don't have a single solution, but, um, but maybe several solutions that we need to try out and, you know, well, um, I think we can, I think, I think we've covered a lot here and, uh, yeah. Uh, thanks for, thanks for doing this and thanks for, thanks for know, having me on allowing time. me to explore this ecosystem a little bit uh, deeper. Uh, it's been, it's been interesting. No, it's been, it's been super lovely to be on and it's, uh, it's super funny to be on the other side of, uh, uh of the interview. <laughs> yeah. And now, so now I've, I've done three, well, three of the, I don't know, I don't remember, I don't know how many episodes or hosts we have now, but uh, three of them have been on the NERAP. So now Meher needs to come on, uh, maybe Felix. And um, yeah, I guess that's, that's most, mostly the main ones. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. And to our listeners, thanks you for tuning in. Uh, if you want to get notified when I go live every Thursday, please make sure to subscribe, hit the notification bell, and the like button. Until next week, hope you have a good one.